What's happening on WOR today? From man to monkey. At least that's what some people claim. Patricia McCann chairs a debate on the theory of evolution next. Then at 310, Carlton Fredericks helps you handle starches and gives you extremely useful advice in his nutrition class. At 410, John R. Gambling's PM New York with Kathy Novak fills you in on everything you need to know at the end of the day. And there's music, too. And then Dick Oliver takes a day off, so City Hall Bureau Chief Mike Oreskes sits behind the editor's desk on the WOR Daily News Tonight Edition. Don't touch that dial. Stay tuned to WOR. Now, Patricia McCann. Thank you, Gordon. A number of scientists thought it was settled, a fate accompli, a fact accompli. The theory of evolution is in question and in the spotlight once again. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Patricia McCann. There are a growing number of people expressing the belief that the Earth is 6,000 years old, not 4.5 billion, that human beings and all other species were ushered into existence by a divine creator, that there has been no evolutionary process to speak of. These people refer to themselves as scientific creationists as opposed to evolutionists. Remember that now. In some cases now, popular mythology has portrayed the opponents of evolution as know-nothing, Bible-thumping fundamentalists. Is that perception correct, or is there a scientific basis for their position? And above all, overall, what explains this creationist revival right now and the activity that seems to be coming with it? I mean, the fact that, for example, legislation is being pressed in 17 states and more than that to give equal time to the creationist theory in classrooms. What is this all about? In just a few moments, because we have with us Dr. Fred Trinkline, who I think describes himself as a scientific creationist, and Joel Gurin who describes himself as an evolutionist. All right, we're going to get to them in a few moments. We live today. A report from Letterly Laboratories, creators of Stress Tab. Overdoing it. Sometimes you want to, sometimes you have to. And for some people, overdoing it is a way of life. When overdoing it means working late or playing hard, skipping meals or missing sleep, you may be demanding too much of your body's nutritional resources. And inadequate nutrition combined with overdoing it can rob you of certain vitamins. When your timetable calls for skipped meals and little less than flat out, your body will increase the rate at which it uses up nutrients, including vitamins. That's why a good balanced diet is so important, and that's when Stress Tab 600 can help your nutrition. Stress Tab 600 is the high-potency vitamin formula that concentrates on replenishing your supply of the certain vitamins your body can't store. The vitamins that must be replaced every day. The vitamins you need to help convert food into energy. Stress Tab 600, Stress Tabs with iron, or Stress Tabs with zinc are products of Letterly Laboratories. Look for the Letterly mark on every package and tablet. If it doesn't say Letterly, it's not Stress Tab. Look, I, I've got something to tell you. When it comes to home decorating and you want to get a very good deal, I want you to remember this name, Woodland Mills Fabrics in Newton, New Jersey. Woodland Mills Fabrics. Don't forget it. This is a very attractive, complete home decorating store that beats inflation. The fabrics 
custom upholstery, slip covers, drapery service at Woodland Mills will be about half the price of what you would pay in a department store or anywhere else. Say you spend $14 a yard at a Bloomingdale's, you'll spend $7.95 for the same fabric at Woodland. Uh, somebody who wanted to slip cover three chairs and a sofa told me she was quoted a price of $850 in her hometown. At Woodland, she was quoted $475, and that's where she wound up going. Woodland Mills, they've got their own shop. The workmanship is superior, draperies are handcrafted, the slipcovers fit like a glove. Woodland Mills has a big choice of current designs and fabrics like Waverly, Schumacher, Bloomcraft, a shop at home service, so don't worry about that. But uh, make a phone call, better yet, have a look, because I, I know you'll appreciate what I'm telling you. Everything under one roof at Woodland Mills at about half the price you'd pay absolutely anywhere else. Woodland Mills Fabrics in Newton, New Jersey. The number is 201-383-4000. It's a day in Hollywood, a night in the Ukraine, and it's the sensational musical comedy hit on Broadway. Hollywood, Ukraine, now at its second smash year, and the critics are still raving. Clive Barnes, New York Post says, A day in Hollywood, a night in the Ukraine is so breathtakingly original that it's simply zoomed. It's the funniest musical to hit Broadway in years. And Rex Reed raves, I never laughed so much in my life or had a better time in the theater. A day in Hollywood, a night in the Ukraine at the Royale Theater. For tickets, call Telecharge 245-5760. And a night in the Ukraine. <laughs> I'm Patricia McCann. You are tuned into my magazine this afternoon. Let me make sure that everybody's mic is on. I trust they are. Yes, now you all are. Uh, Dr. Fred Trinkline, you teach physics and religion at Long Island Lutheran High School, professor of astronomy at Nassau Community College, author of Modern Physics, a widely used high school text. You are a scientific creationist, if I'm not mistaken. Now, I'm going to get to you in one split second. Joel Gurren. You are a science writer. Uh, you hold a degree in biochemistry from Harvard, now living in Boston. You've been working as a full-time science writer for the past six years for the Atlantic Monthly. You've been writing in the nation, science, etc. All right? Uh, your article, The Creationist Revival, is in the April issue of The Sciences. I've heard it said, to those who are trained in science, Creationism seems like a bad dream, like uh, a nightmare right now, uh, because the scientific evidence for the evolutionary development of life seems to these people to be absolutely overwhelming. In other words, how can possibly anybody question today in 1981 the theory of evolution? All right, I'm asking you that. Well, first of all, I think it's important to divorce this discussion from uh, any kind of religious discussion because it is certainly not a debate between religion on one side and science on the other. I've had the opportunity over the last number of years to talk to some of the world's leading scientists on the question of religion and science, and I discovered that the overwhelming majority of scientists in the world, at least the leaders that I spoke to, are believers in God. They believe that God created the universe, 
It's not a question of whether there is a God or not. It's a question of how did God create the universe. And what I find in my discussions, especially in my own field of physics and astronomy, is an increasing number of people who find loopholes in uh, the theory of evolution. And I'd like to give one example of that. Well, could you first just say what the theory of creation creation is? The well, creationist theory. Um, another term for it, I think the term uh, scientific creationism is not a good one because, as I say, it has these connotations of religion. I like to use the term catastrophism. I'm a scientific catastrophist. That is a person who believes that many of the things that we see in the universe could have happened in short periods of time rather than over eons of time. Like in six days? Well, I don't know. I, I mm -hmm. see you're bringing in religion. I said that's not necessary to discuss this. I'd like to talk about the evidence in the universe of how things got the way they are. And for instance, in astronomy, the prevailing theory of evolution in astronomy is that the universe came into being some 15 billion years ago through a process known as the Big Bang. Now, the Big Bang is based on a physical principle known as the Doppler shift which means that we see spectral lines when we look at the stars that haven't been displaced from where they should be. And Dr. Hubble some years ago in California said that this shift is due to the fact that everything is rushing away from us, that the universe blew up and it's all rushing outward at a tremendous rate. Well, recently, Dr. Halton Arp at Caltech came up with photographs and evidences that the red shift of certain objects in space must not be due to the receding velocities of these objects and therefore and there's a good article about this in the current issue of science digest by the way that i have with me here it says that the entire theory of the big bang may have to be thrown overboard the headline on the front page says new creation theory caltech discovery shock astronomy world well okay. that's a little strong uh, but, yeah but guess uh, what yes uh i'm lost already well, I'm just trying to point out that there are a great many scientists who find loopholes in the assumption that everything in the universe came into being through long periods of time. That much of what has happened could just as well be explained by a sudden catastrophe. I mean, it is just as difficult yeah. to make something uh, suddenly, as out of nothing, let's say, than it is to have it evolve over long periods. Somehow people think it's more logical to assume one than the other. Well, that's not the case. It is simply a matter of which uh, theory of the two, and they're both theories, you know. A theory in science is never an absolute truth. Uh, a theory is not something you believe in absolutely. You don't put your confidence in it. You don't believe it like you believe motherhood or in America or in God. It's something mm -hmm. you study. You work with it. And I find that the people who come up with theories do not put the same trust and confidence in the theories they propose that many people who write about them or teach them. Well, what, 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 how, how do you think that creation took place? I don't know. But I want to leave it an open question. I don't want to tell my students or write in my books that scientists are universally agreed that this is the way it was. Because every theory in the history of science undergoes changes and it's important and only honest to tell students that science is constantly changing. And when Dr. Arp challenges the Big Bang Theory, I want to tell my students this. I want to tell them that maybe there is still a better explanation that hasn't even been proposed yet. And that the minute we stifle curiosity and uh, challenging of existing theories, that's when science suffers. 
I want science to remain the open-minded search that it was intended to be, not the closed-minded kind of brainwashing that you see in many textbooks. Yeah, um, I, I would certainly agree with that. I, I, there's no way I could disagree. Um, I think, though, that the issue we're talking around is really a different issue than the issue of whether or not students are just uh, are, are told that science is a dogmatic fact. Um, <clears throat> you know, this is uh, the experiments that you mentioned from Caltech uh, have gotten a lot of publicity. As you said yourself, they're in Science Digest. I don't think this is anything that's being kept from people by scientists who want to present uh, science as a uniform thing where everything is solved. Is your purpose in telling us about that Big Bang Theory maybe going bang itself, the fact that uh, it has been being believed in and now it might go up in smoke and look, that's why you have to keep an open mind? That's right. It's typical of okay. the history of science. Yeah. Well, I think open-mindedness is, is absolutely uh, essential to the conduct of science. I think my own interest in this field recently has been through studying the scientific creationist movement, um, which is a movement that criticizes the theory of evolution and tries to replace it with a theory that really comes, I think, very much out of biblical fundamentalism. And what I've seen happen very much with people, groups in California, uh, groups around the country, is a technique of taking problems in evolution and rather than saying the fact that scientists are disagreeing shows that science is healthy, saying the fact that scientists are disagreeing shows that the theory is no good. In other words, here you, have, to. here you have the theory of evolution which has been being propounded and in some instances, um, uh, according to some people, taught rather dogmatically in schools today, I mean taught as fact that this is how the world was created. I mean, it evolved. All right. I think uh, Mr. Gurren is oversimplifying the matter of how dogmatically things are taught. I'm not against only teaching uh, evolution dogmatically. I'm against teaching all science dogmatically. No, but I think what he's saying is that there are, amongst evolutionists themselves, there's a great deal of disagreement as to how, I mean, they, they all believe in that uh, fashion of our coming into being. But because they disagree, uh, there is open-mindedness in them that uh, the opposing side, say the, the, uh, the uh, scientific creationists, have picked on that as a flaw in the theory of evolution because the evolutionists are disagreeing amongst themselves, then therefore the theory must be all wet, all wrong. That's what I've seen happening nationally. I'm not saying you're trying to do that, uh, but I've certainly seen that in my interviews with scientific creationists in California, uh, and, and in reading the literature that, that has been distributed nationally. Um, I think, you know, everybody should, I think the idea that science should not be taught dogmatically is a very good one, but I think these disagreements among scientists have been misused. Well, look, um, you believe in a theory of evolution? Yeah. Why? Why? Well, in my training as biochemistry, in biochemistry, excuse me, uh, I've just seen a lot of evidence that uh, convinces me that, in fact, organisms can change over time. I certainly think there are a great many unanswered questions in the theory of evolution. But I also see ways that... What's the major unanswered what's question? What's the major unanswered question? I have the major unanswered question, which I think is, is a very interesting one. Uh, to me, the most interesting question is, is how life began. 
in the first place, how the first living cell was put together. I mean, in that primeval soup yes. that we yes. had at the very start of it all, yes. as far as we know. Yes. And it was just soup. What was it? It was soup. It was made up of pretty much the same kind of chemicals you have in your body today. Amino acids, uh, DNA, which is the stuff that genes and heredity uh, are on, and so on. The real question is how these various different components got put together into a living cell. And this, I think, is an example of a question that really does not have a good answer now uh, in evolutionary theory. However, there are other disagreements among evolutionists, probably the biggest one being uh, the rate of evolution. Uh, there's a new theory now that says that evolution did not happen just gradually all going at the same rate, but that every once in a while uh, new species would arise suddenly suddenly here on a geological time scale, meaning over maybe 10,000 years. And this is a kind of disagreement that I don't think is so unanswerable, but has been picked up by the creationists as kind of an unanswerable problem. That what is the significance? Why, why, why does it make any difference whether it happened in a... What are the implications if it happened catastrophically and quickly, and if it happened slow? What, what, so what? What, what are the implications of those two? Well, all of science is so what, isn't it? It's a matter of uh, searching for truth, and I'd like to come back to that point that you really don't believe... I mean, does one, in a sense, prove more the existence of a god no, and the other that's doesn't? The outset, absolutely not. It's just mm. as hard to make something over a long period of time as suddenly. But the question is scientific honesty, you see. You shouldn't ever believe a theory. I don't believe in the theory of gravity. Neither did Einstein. You don't believe theories, you study them. My call to Dr. Hoffer when we, we wrote a chapter on the evolution of the solar system in our astronomy text, and I asked him, Dr. Hoffer, which theory of evolution shall we teach in this book? And he said, well, let's teach five or six. And I said, how can you do that? And he said, well, I have two theories myself. You see, you don't... Are there more than two? Oh, there are hundreds. Uh, evolution is not a theory. Evolution is many things. That's why I don't like to use the term creationist and evolutionist. I'm not a creationist in the sense that I am opposed to everything I mean, evolutionists he... say. But for instance, uh, Mr. Gurin pointed out there are certain loopholes. Now, for example, where did the soup come from? You see, science cannot deal with ultimate causes. How did the soup get there? Yeah, Who put right. the soup in the pot? God process? obviously originally had to make everything, whether he did it by an evolutionary process or a sudden process. But I don't know if that's obvious. I, I guess that's what people are saying. Is it that's obvious? That's a leap of faith. That's yeah, not that's... a scientific question. Yeah. That's not a scientific question. But I'd like to ask a question about this loophole. I read recently that a geologist in Texas just wrote a book called The Dinosaurs and the People Who Knew Them. Dr. John Morris, the geologist, and I read the book, it has pictures of footprints that supposedly are human footprints side by side with dinosaur tracks. Now, if this is true, then a tenet of evolution that says that 60 million years transpired between these two footprints must obviously be revised. Now, what um, do you think about that, Mr. Gore? Well, that's uh, actually an example that's been used by scientific creationists all over the country, um, and who... And they are certainly arguing for an Earth that's only 10,000 or 6,000 years old. I don't know if that's your intent or not. My understanding is that this is one kind of flukish uh, find. Um, some of the human footprints, uh, and this is actually from an article in Next Magazine analyzed these, some of the human footprints seem to have been caused by erosion. It's also uh, been said that there was, uh, during the Depression era, 
um, archaeologists were aware of somebody who was going around to sites like this and who, as a prank, was carving human footprints in unlikely places. Uh, whether or not this happened, we can't say, but I think it's very dangerous to try to revise a whole theory on the basis of an isolated incident like that. The fossil record as a whole shows very clearly that humans and dinosaurs lived at different times, and I think you Do you think there's more scientific time. evidence uh, to bear out the theory of evolution than there is to bear out, say, the, the theory of, uh, what shall we call it, Cat catastrophism? Catastrophism. It depends what you mean by catastrophism, and I still haven't heard exactly how you're using the term. Uh, certainly things can happen quickly in geological time, and as I said, this is one of the mm -hmm. big debates in evolution now, but, but the idea of something Certainly there's more evidence for evolution than there is for an Earth created 10,000 years ago in six days, which several creationists are arguing for. Well, um, I never said that. You said I know. That. No, and, and I didn't say you did. No. Yes, now the question arises, for example, whether something is scientific evidence or not. Now, in the case of the Paloxi River finds, you say they may be hoaxes. Well, so may everything be a hoax. So, so were many of the fossil finds found to be hoaxes years ago that were considered missing links. I've been told at a symposium at Princeton University recently that there's no place in the world where there are actually fossils of missing links. Is that correct? Well, I think this is, you know, this is a, this is a very interesting point. Um, the main... What, what I, is this all about? Okay, what's it all about? Okay, I can tell you what it's all very about. Very quickly, because time's running out, and I want to let the audience uh, in on this. Can I get a minute? Yep. <laughs> okay. If you're a creationist, if you're a scientific creationist, you have to believe that there are no missing links showing evolution from one species to another, because you would have to believe that God created all species separately. Um, there is new scientific evidence. Well, it's been hard... You mean that we all didn't come from apes? That we all didn't come from apes, correct. Uh, and that apes, that, didn't, that apes didn't come from slime mold. Yeah, apes, you know, figuratively, right. Um, there is a big debate, as I said before, among evolutionists now, over how fast evolution happened. It's possible that if evolution happened by steps rather than gradually, you would not see these missing links because they wouldn't be kept in the fossil record. So there are two possible explanations, yeah. All right, look, again, I'm Patricia McCann. You are tuned into this very, really quite uh, gentle discussion of a, of a difficult topic here, a rational discussion. Uh, again, I have heard it said that fundamentally this is not a scientific or even a religious issue, this, this uh, evolutionism versus creationism, that it is a political issue. I did mention the word legislation, for example, at the beginning of the program, um, being pressed in a number of different states. As a matter of fact, it's being pressed right here, and I don't know, as far as getting uh, equal time for creationism in schools, in textbooks. I, I would like very much for you two to pursue this a little bit, because I think there is a popular perception that uh, anyone who is a scientific creationist is, uh, is uh, um, Bible-thumping time. So let's get to it in just a few moments. Okay. Greyhound loves the state of New York, too. From the magnificent mountains, hundreds of sparkling lakes, forests, and historical sites, to the most exciting city in the world. New York has more to see and do than most countries, and nobody can show it to you like Greyhound. We're going more places in New York than anybody else at a price that's tough to beat. 
Plus, you save even more with the New York State Hotel Pass. So this vacation, come to New York. Call your travel agent for Greyhound. Don't need to worry about driving when there's someone you can New York, and we also love a place in New York called Rene Pujol, spelled P-U-J-O-L. I like this place a lot. It, it is, as I've often said to you, it's like walking into a small inn in the Pyrenees Mountains, and that's just where uh, Rene Pujol's family is from. And, of course, this restaurant, Rene Pujol's, right here at 321 West 51st Street, is a family affair. When I went in the other night, the family was sitting down to dinner. I arrived very early, and they were having dinner laying in the back together. Uh, Renee's son-in-law is in the kitchen. He is an exquisite cook. I tell you, this man is turning out some very elegant food. And by elegant, I mean fine. I don't mean fussy. And I just mean exquisite kind of cuisine. The vegetables are done beautifully. The meat, delicately. And the cream sauces and the thinner sauces, the lighter sauces, are done with a lot of finesse. Fifteen to nineteen dollars for a complete dinner at Rene Pujol. Otherwise, you order a la carte. A Rene Pujol's restaurant. I do have the number. Of course I have the number. Uh, 246-3023. 246-3023 for Rene Pujol. So P-U-J-O-L. Say hello to him for me, will you? Uh, and by the way, of course this place is uh, situated in the theater district. That's kind of nice to know. Kind of nice to know, rather. We'll be back in just two minutes. If you've been reading about wise money management in your favorite publications, you've undoubtedly heard about Dreyfus Liquid Assets, one of the world's largest money market funds, and about the big yields you can get on your money right now. Start with as little as $2,500. Make added investments as low as $100. With Dreyfus Liquid Assets, your money is yours whenever you need it. Phone for it, have it sent to your bank, or write a redemption check for cash or to pay your larger bills. You keep right on earning that high yield compounded daily until your check clears. No penalties on interest, no sales charge, no charge for the checks. It's so simple, sensible, convenient. But find out for yourself. Call toll-free 800-523-7600 for free information and a prospectus, including management fee, charges, and expenses. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Discover how Dreyfus Liquid Assets can help you get the lion's share of today's high money market rate. 800-523-7600, toll-free. 800 800- when you shop for a refrigerator, a washer, a range, any major appliance, you immediately look for quality and the best if possible you've been price. Reading about wise money management. Ooh, how did that ever happen? Uh, no wonder thousands of homeowners throughout New York have shopped the American Home Center at 3rd Avenue and 30th Street, buying quality build GE major appliances and air conditioners at the kind of low, low prices only an appliance giant can deliver. Low prices that are even lower right now during American Home Center's pre-summer value days. Today, every GE refrigerator, washer, dryer, dishwasher, every GE range, microwave, oven, value price to go. And there's really no better time than now to buy your new GE air conditioner at American Home Center before the really hot weather hits. I don't think it's going to get any hotter. With selections huge and prices low. That's at 3rd Avenue, at 30th Street, Manhattan, where saving money isn't just a tradition, it's downright American. The American Home Center. 
I'm Patricia McCann. You're tuned into my magazine. I'd like to give you our number because maybe, maybe you would like to join this discussion. We're talking about uh, creationism versus uh, evolution. Our number is 212-391-2800, 212-391-2800. And it's interesting that Dr. Fred Trinkline has just mentioned to me that he used to be an evolutionist. Now he... Uh, has he's more not that he strictly believes in the theory of creationism, but he he kind of swings in that direction. He's he's changed uh, his positions. Now look, let me just say something to you. Do you distinguish yourself from the scientific creationists who are uh, uh, being now identified with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority, and with this whole drive to secure legislation to get the theory of creation? Uh, equal time in the classroom and in textbooks. You, you distinguish well, yourself I, from this group? I dislike labels. You see, when uh, you raise a flag and call one person evolutionist, another creationist, you get all these other connotations. I'm not a member of any fundamentalist society or creation research society. I'm against legislation. I don't think you can legislate the teaching of science any more than you can legislate the teaching of reading. I don't know whether phonics is better mm -hmm. or word recognition. I believe in intellectual honesty. I believe in telling students and writing in the textbooks that theories are not to be believed. They are to be studied. They are... So you don't believe in the theory of creation, right? any theory. I believe in stimulating thought by proposing ideas that will never be absolutely true. The theory of evolution or any other theory is never absolutely true. As one scientist told me in Europe, no amount of data will ever prove a theory absolutely, but one discovery can disprove it. That's what I want to tell students. No amount of data will ever prove a theory absolutely, but one discovery can disprove it. That's what I want to tell students. Challenge, stimulate, be skeptical All right. in scientific things. But science can never answer the question of why, just how. All right, well, why. let me just say to you, I, I know where Joe Gurin is from, because we, we went after him. We didn't go after you. We got a press release about you from a public relations firm, which I always am curious about. I'm, I'm wondering why a teacher like you would hire a PR firm to let people know about you and about your way of, your, your perception of this issue. I didn't hire a PR firm. Oh, because there, it says at the top of this Cassidy Brown PR, and that's why yes. I thought maybe, you know, I, my no, sense is I, as a journalist, I have to say, hey, are you involved with uh, Jerry Falwell no, or with that no. Creation Institute out on the West Coast, which uh, no, I do a lot of does writing. a lot of research on science. And I lecture and write extensively, and this is one of the uh, public relations people who sent you my brief, that's all. Oh, you mean because you are an author? Yes. Um, would you say that you have a bend in the direction of uh, of God? I mean, you've done a lot of interviewing of scientists around the country to find out if, if their beliefs in, in, in science and God were uh, compatible. Well, I, as I told you, the great majority of scientists I interviewed around the world believe in God. It's not a question of believing in God because it's a question of how did God do it. You'll be hard put to it to find a scientist who does not believe in God. If you look at my book, The God of Science, there are only two people in that whole series of interviews who told me that they were atheists. The other people expressed surprise that I would ask them whether they believed in God and whether this conflicts with their science. There's no conflict between science and God. They deal with different issues. Science deals with the how of the universe. God deals with why it's there and with human problems and involvement. All right. There's no conflict. Let's hear what you have to say, Joel. Yeah. 
I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I'd like, I think there's a very important distinction to be made. Uh, the issue that's been brought up by scientific creationism is not one of whether or not someone can believe in God and be a good scientist. Obviously, uh, some of the, the greatest scientists have been very religious. I think the real issue is whether or not science, scientific theory can be extracted from the literal words of the Bible which is very much what's happening in the scientific creationist movement. It's not just a question of people saying, well, maybe God originated the Big Bang that started the universe and everything else happened as, you know, through evolution and so on. People are really proposing a model that says that everything was created six to 10,000 years ago, that everything happened in six days, that all species were created separately, that there was a flood. And one of the biggest research projects of the Institute for Creation Research is to try to find Noah's Ark, as if this somehow will validate the literal truth of the Bible and therefore validate what they have to say about evolution. So that's what I'm opposed to. I'm not at all opposed to scientists being religious. I think that's a matter of personal May choice, I ask but... you what your religious persuasion or non-religious persuasion is? I mean, I kind of uh, cornered uh, our other uh -huh. guests. May I corner you? you? Have to. <laughs> no, but I'm curious to know where you're coming from. Sure. Well, uh, I'm Jewish, um, and where I'm coming from is that, uh, you know, as far as my religious beliefs relate to my scientific interests, I think that, you know, if you are trying to understand the origin of the Big Bang, that is in some ways fundamentally a religious question. And I don't deny that at all. I think when you do go far enough back and try to understand the origins of the universe, there's a religious element to that. But I do not think that the, that the universe began and the species were created the way it says in the Bible, word for word. And that is precisely what is being propounded by you, the scientific creationists. All right. Now, you know, the, the scientific creationists, um, uh, I don't know how to tuck this in quickly, but... Uh, uh, <sighs> The political aspect of it that, that, that some people uh, feel exists, Darwinism, to the uh, to these people, is the cornerstone of secular humanism, and that's that's the whipping boy these days. Uh, the belief that man, not God, is the source of right and wrong, and uh, they they blame the secular humanism for all sorts of modern ills like juvenile delinquency, um, high rate of abortions, and they want to replace that with Christian morality. I mean, do you agree with this? This is kind of like a, a, a uh, you know, it's a way of an attempt to, it's the only way they can get this kind of uh, uh, teaching into schools is by calling themselves scientific creationists. They can't call themselves religious or uh, otherwise public schools would never accept this. No, I, th I think that is what's happening now. And I think what's very interesting is that their tactic has been to say that the schools are really teaching secular humanism and this is a religion and therefore you know this is bad and it, it goes against the first amendment that says there should be no state religion i can't see how you can have a religion that most people who belong to it or don't even know they belong to it i mean most by these criteria somebody teaching ethics or or, or anything you, to be called you, a secular humanist and do you have any i mean remarks on why you think this is happening now why the creationist revival now I think it's a political movement uh, that has to do with the growing conservatism of the country. I think it's it's basically that that simple. Although I I do think uh, there are also there are scientific issues that are going on at the mm -hmm. same time. But I think the scientific creationist movement is really a political one. And, and how do you feel about well, that? Well, um, I think Mr. Gordon, in some respects, is misrepresenting the Institute for Creation Research. I know a number of those people. I've talked to them. I have their literature. 
And it's not a matter of literally interpreting the Bible at all, but rather things of this nature. And I uh, was particularly struck by this one point that one of the scientists there brought out because I happen to know the person they were talking about, and that is the carbon-14 method of dating. Dr. Willard Libby, who received the Nobel Prize for this, told me during a Nobel conference that people who use the carbon-14 dating method are putting a lot, of more, a lot more reliability into the method than he would. And therefore, based on that assumption, there is a scientific question here of whether the dating of objects by radiocarbon is valid, because it assumes, among other things, that the rate of radioactive decay has always been constant. Now, we have no way of knowing that. We've only known about radioactivity for about 80 years. On the other hand, it also assumes that nothing has entered the species or a specimen under study, that nothing has leached in, and that therefore the sample is pure. These are the sorts of things that these uh, scientists in the Institute for Creative Research are All right, can I mention something there that I, I did read someplace, and maybe I'm all wrong on this, that the uh, Creation Science Research Center... It's a different organization. Oh, it's different? Yes. Ah, different. Yes. ah, because I know that they apparently... Uh, they were the ones in favor of legislation. Yeah, the, yes. they're lobbying against sex education, abortion, and equal rights. That's so that's group. a different... All right, now look, we've got some phone calls here. We, we've got to pay some attention to our... Dear listeners, and our number again is 212-391-2800, creationism versus evolution. Uh, 212-391-2800 is our number. I'm going to do a few commercials and I'm going to get back to you. For He-Man. Here's congratulations to the guys who run the He-Man shops, Ralph, Hal, and Chuck. Fellows, you're certainly getting your message across. Seems like every big and tall man in town is heading right to a nearby He-Man shop. And no wonder. He-Man's fashions, He-Man's selections, He-Man's values are everything you said they were. In suits, in sportswear, in furnishings, in shoes. All specially selected from America's great name makers for the big and tall man. So if you're big or tall, go to He-Man, the store that was born and bred to serve you exclusively. One visit and you too will say, Ralph, Al, Chuck. You're certainly getting your message across. He-Man has seven convenient locations in Brooklyn, Forest Hills, Huntington, Paramus, East Brunswick, Scarsdale, Yonkers area, and Norwalk, Connecticut. Use your American Express or other major credit card. But remember, you're not in a He-Man shop unless it says so. If you want to treat father like a king on Father's Day and you still haven't uh, figured out what you're going to do for him, why don't you take him to the, for dinner at the Tut Room at the Hacienda in, in New Hope, Pennsylvania. After all, you know, King Tut was quite a king. And Pam Minford, who runs the Hacienda Inn so beautifully, 22 rooms small inn, has one very attractive, cozy room. Uh, the reason they call it the Tut Room is because they're very small, delicate artifacts that are copies of uh, artifacts from, from the tomb of King Tut. It's a, a romantic room. All the tables are for two, okay? And uh, Champagne-colored uh, uh, banquettes, white tablecloths, very cool and tranquil, and you look out the window into green, spacious lawns. It's just a, a little quaint side street in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Food, oh, I'd start with the stuffed mushroom, stuffed with shrimp and scallops and chopped mushroom and crouton, a delicious light cream sauce. Hacienda Inn, that's what you ought to give Father for Father's Day. Treat him like a king. Let me give you the phone number of the Hacienda Inn in New Hope. 215 862 2078. 215 862 2078.
Chocolates and crisp ices, lettuce. With whatever you please. That's using your head. With broccoli. With mushroom. With baby green peas. That's using your head. With avocados. Tomatoes. Tomatoes, my dear. There's no more appropriate time to begin. For a big hearty salad. And a crust of French bread. <laughs> That's using your head. This head full of salad ideas has been sponsored by the California Iceberg Lettuce Commission. Yes, Waldemans invites you to get out the salad bowl and put a delicious, healthy fruit salad on the menu tonight. Start with large 36 size vine ripened California cantaloupe, deliciously priced 79 cents each. Add sweet, juicy southern peaches, 49 cents a pound. And what fruit salad is really complete without a ripe red watermelon? Just 19 cents a pound. Fruits for refreshing. Good salads on sale at Walbaum's, where more than the price is absolutely right. We never guess ooh and ah over our beautiful carpet from Sandler and Wirth, and after I've explained all about Antron, then I have a chance to go on and on about their special quality of service. I'm Peggy Fitzgerald, and nothing compares with the peace of mind one has when buying carpets from Sandler and Wirth. It's the care Lou Sandler puts into every part of his business. You see it in their installation workmanship. You see it in the salespeople. They're educated in carpet, and they want you to be happy. And the nice people in the office, they're like a family. And what's more, it's your own salesperson who measures your rooms, not some impersonal service. I have visited Sandler and Worth even when they're busy as bees, and their style doesn't change at all. So do hurry out for important savings now, because Lou's reduced all of his luxurious cabin craft carpets, and you'll see just why I call these people my dear darlings. Go to Sandler and Worth in Springfield, Route 4, Paramus, Eatontown, North Brunswick, Succasona, and their new stores in Bricktown, Flemington, and Manhasset. Thank you, Pagin. You know, speaking of dear darlings, that's what you are. Now, let, let's get to our first caller. And you're on WOR at long last. Hello, I'm yes. here. Yes. Okay, on the matter of time span, I must point to the coal and oil deposits, which require huge amounts of accumulated matter. Now, the question is, what is the amount of time involved in, number one, the lifespan and the growth time for this matter to accumulate, and then number two, the conversion time for it to be changed to coal and oil? I don't imagine it's 6,000 or 10,000 years. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, I really don't know precisely, but uh, yes, much much more than six to ten thousand years would be my answer. Uh, certainly. Um. All right. As, and I, as I say, I don't know how long anything took. I'm uh, interested in challenging existing beliefs or existing explanations. And what I said before about radiocarbon-14 dating applies here as well. That much of scientific theory is based on what is known in science as the universal principle, which means that everything has always occurred at the rate that it occurs now. And if we presume that to be true, then of course we can come up with some number. But that's making a very big assumption that over all those years, the conditions were always like they are today. All right. You're on WOR. Go ahead. Hello? Yes. Would you please go ahead? Yes. I have a question for the evolution theorist on your show. I would like to ask him how he can explain the consistent systematic gapping apparent throughout all levels of the fossil record and how that being as uh, the real world, uh, how this fails to uh, support the evolution theory in general. Well, that's a good question. Um, the 
gapping actually is, has been a yeah, problem. Yeah, but we don't understand that. You okay. see, and that's what worries me. I think I think what the caller is referring to is the absence of, of missing links, really, in the fossil record. Is that correct? Well, they're gone. Oh, they're gone. Sorry. All right. Well, okay. You mean if there are missing links? Then, then maybe the theory of evolution isn't true. No, let me, let me just, let me just. I hate to get caught up in this, but go um, ahead. shall I? Okay. It's, it's really what I was describing before about the, the new idea that evolution may have happened in steps rather than gradually. If it happened in steps, it's possible because fossil deposits take so long to be put down that you would never see the intermediate, uh, steps. You would just see, you know, one species and then the other in the next species, uh, in the next layer. Um, so with new ideas that can be explained, I think. You're on WOR. Hello. Yes. Uh, the gentlemen are talking about two different types of evolution. One comes from the geological, physical background, the other from biological background. Uh, don't the um, different types of science involve two uh, Isn't the evolution of the planets and of the Earth different in principle than evolution of life itself? Aren't we talking about two totally different things? Well, that's why I said before the term evolution is an unfortunate one because it's a grand concept that means the gradual change of one thing into the other and there are many ideas and I I wish that someday we'd replace both of these terms, creation and evolution, with something new. I'm reminded when I interviewed Dr. Hubert Elie at Princeton about what he tells his students and he told me on the first day of his classes, he says the universe is made of matter, energy and blurps. And the students look up in surprise and say, we never heard about blurps in high school. And he said, well, someday blurps will be discovered. And then the students will say, ah, Dr. Elier wasn't so dumb after all. He predicted blurps. <laughs> so I'd like to call the new theory that will eventually emerge the blurp theory. Well, fair enough. <laughs> I, I think it's important to point out, though, that, uh, again, um, the scientific creationists have, have raised issues about both the evolution of the solar system and the Earth, because they have this 10,000-year time span, and the evolution of life itself. So from my point of view, uh, they're connected just because the political battle connects them. Can you explain it? Can I explain it? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, if you take a biblical uh, perspective, then that perspective uh, makes a lot of... And I think this is something people don't realize. You know, the debate has really been uh, talked about as if it only applied to biology and how human beings evolved. Really, if you take the biblical perspective, as these groups are doing, you also have to revise your ideas about uh, geology, about astronomy, and I think also about chemistry and physics. Uh, this from my reading of creationist texts. So I think... The challenge that's going on now, it legislatively, really challenges all the physical sciences, not only biology. Not only biology, but not all across the board. Yes. All right, we're going to have to leave you both for a few moments.